there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Carter was nominated for the presidency at the Democratic National Convention. 17,000 Polish workers went on strike, kicking off the Solidarity Movement. John Lennon and Yoko Ono started work on their classic album, Double Fantasy. And in Australia, Azaria Chamberlain disappeared, an event which would directly lead to Meryl Streep's timeless proclamation, The Dingo's got my baby! Even so, there were plenty of movies to keep us busy in August of 1980. Scott, how are you, sir? Hello, Drew. Good to hear from you again. We are now in August. That's crazy. We're at the end of the summer for our first year already. And we've done a pretty good job, I think, of covering the year so far. Although, say oops, upside your head. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, so, uh, so once again, we pulled a boner and uh, we, we got some of these release dates wrong. The first one that we want to cover, uh, there's a little bit of a dispute as to what the release date is. It's one of those movies that came out regionally, evidently, in several different sort of waves. Uh, I see some of the release dates listed as January of 1980. Scott's seen release dates in 1979, but the film was actually first shot in 77 and then reshot again and is basically two totally different productions sort of Frankenstein together into one movie called Silent Scream. What's probably most interesting about uh, Silent Scream is that it was written by uh, Ken and Jim Wheat, who would go on to uh, do Riddick and Pitch Black. And um, and we just covered them. So Ken and Jim Wheat are uh, genre screenwriters whom we, we admire very much, but uh, there's probably not a whole lot to say about Silent Scream. Well, it had you know it, it has one of those supporting casts: Barbara Steele and Cameron Mitchell and Yvonne DiCarlo, a bunch of old pros, and it's a really, really toothless slasher film, all set in a weird house. Also, there are two Chuck Norris movies we're going to cover today. This is A Force of One. Uh, it's directed by Aaron Paul, and uh, in this one, cops are being killed by a martial artist, so they bring in a kickboxer to help them stop the guy. It's ridiculous. It has a decent supporting cast, though. If you're going to make a Chuck Norris movie, you better get some, you know, Jennifer O'Neill and Clue Gulliger and some interesting people. Yeah, of the, of the two of them that we're going to cover today, this is the better one of them, I think. The one that holds up a little better. I mean, they're both ridiculous, but at least this one, the reason for him being involved makes a little more sense. He doesn't do much martial arts in the other one, which is sort of a, a letdown. I've never been a Chuck Norris fan. My friends, when I was growing up, they were huge Chuck Norris fans, and I think we probably did this, Silent Rage, and maybe Missing in Action Part 1. 
in one night because they were just rawr, you know, like anything with Chuck Norris, they instantly wanted to see. My dad was a big fan, man. So like we saw all of these theatrically. They were events and we saw some of them at the drive-in. I remember that. I'm pretty sure I saw this and the Octagon together. They're, you know, they're disposable. They're, you know, they're they're just as generic as, uh, as, as old school Asian martial arts movies that would play on Saturday afternoon. They're just very conventional and basic if you like the Chuck Norris formula. You know, these early ones are maybe, you know, a little bit chintzier than the ones he did later, but I just never liked him as a persona. I don't think he's an interesting action hero. He's not likable. He's not charming. My favorite Chuck Norris movie we'll get to later is Invasion USA, and even then I can't help but wish that somebody with more personality had been in it. And that would have been March of 1980, which also would have been the release date of The Visitor. And The Visitor is... How would you describe The Visitor to somebody who hasn't seen it? I wouldn't. I would just say watch it because it's, you know, brilliantly weird. So why don't you explain it? (laughs) Um, Aliens and demonic kids and there's telekinesis and control of birds. And I don't know. It's crazy. It is a crazy movie. And it's one of those films where it feels like they took... 12 or 15 different genre films that had done business in like the eight years before this. And they just did one scene from each of them and considered that a movie. And it has crazy people. And it has Glenn Ford and Sam Peckinpah and Shelley Winters and John Houston. And it is packed with really recognizable Hollywood names, but it's madness. The way it's actually made fooling around was April of 1980 It was a cable mainstay for a little while, and it's a romantic sort of uh, comedy with Gary Busey constantly trying to convince Annette O'Toole to leave her rich boyfriend and and be with him. It isn't awful, and this is Gary Busey back when he was still Gary Busey, back when he was that sort of charming, interesting character actor who had done the Buddy Holly story and and Hollywood was just trying to figure out what to do with him here. It's not bad. It's actually it's if if you find it and you like either of those young actors, uh, it's pretty charming. We now uh, we close out the boner section with two movies that clearly inspired Edgar Wright at one point in his and career. they both have yeah very similar titles. Yes, uh, because both films start with the word "don't," don't answer the phone, and don't go in the house. Um, <laughs> There's there's not much you can do. Don't answer the phone. Don't go in the house. Don't do anything. Don't. These are both really boring movies. Yeah, um, and don't go in the house is uh, is nasty. Don't answer the phone is is very basic and very generic. Don't go in the house is pretty grim. Well, it has that one filthy sequence, and the sequence is so stark that it makes the rest of the film feel heavier than it is. It's really kind of mild mannered otherwise, but the scene is really insane. And this is coming from a guy who, you know, has dug up and seen most of the, the horror films available from the late 70s and throughout the 80s. Yeah. Uh, neither one of these is, is worth tracking down. So that was April 1980 and March 1980. We missed a few of these, but these are films that uh, most of them were, were getting small regional releases anyway. We also already discussed The Hunter, which was the Steve McQueen film where he played uh, the real life bounty hunter, Ralph Papa Thorson. So instead, now we will just jump right forward into the movies of August 1980. And we're going to start with one that is pretty well known and I think moderately well liked. It is a science fiction movie called The Final Countdown. 
on board the USS Nimitz, the most advanced nuclear supership in the American arsenal, carrying a complement of 102 aircraft and 6,000 men. The Nimitz is on routine duty, guarding the waters of the South Pacific. But within minutes, a bizarre, unexplainable phenomenon of nature will transport the Nimitz 40 years back in time. Back to the day of infamy. Back to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. My gosh, look at that. The final countdown. It's, uh, it's a little dry and starchy. You know, it's a little dated in that regard, uh, in that it takes its time. Like, you can kind of see where it's going within 40 minutes, and then it takes its time getting there. But I wouldn't call it boring. It's definitely fun. If it was remade today, it would be a bit punchier and a bit quicker, a little more fast-paced. But it's a very clever idea, and it's got a very good ensemble, too. Well, it benefits from two things. It benefits from the fact that it is shot all practical, and they had access to the Nimitz, to an actual aircraft carrier. So they have a ton of footage of planes taking off and them actually on the aircraft carrier, and everything's real, which makes it pretty interesting and exciting when they do the one real action scene in the film where they go up against some uh, Japanese Zeros, and they have modern fighter jets go up against these zeros he basically comes in right at the surface of the water and pulls up at the last second and does this like kind of hovering lift and it's a real stunt evidently terrified pilots who saw it like it is a crazy bit of flying but these were just navy guys who were really good and they were given a chance to show off on film and they did and it really pays off because that stuff is is pretty memorable not only does it have a, a very, its very own aircraft carrier, which back in 1980 would have added, you know, nowadays you can build an aircraft carrier with a computer program in 10 seconds. Back then, it was probably pretty novel. And not only that, but it's got Kirk Douglas, Martin Sheen, and the great Charles Durning. And uh, Catherine Ross, James Ferentino. And James Ferentino is such a lug that he makes me laugh. Ron O'Neill, who, by the way... Ron O'Neill having a very big month on the podcast. Ron O'Neill was also in Force of One, the uh, the Chuck Norris film. So, uh, yeah, we're having a big Ron O'Neill month. But I enjoy Final Countdown. I think it's a fun movie. It feels like an episode of a Twilight Zone or Outer Limits type show stretched out to feature length. And it's fairly, you know, fairly small scale, all things considered. Yeah, it's, it's funny you'd say that because the director, Don Taylor... I would say 90% of his career was done on television. Very prolific. Uh, I remember his name mainly because he did the uh, the Dr. Moreau remake in 77 and Damien Omen 2 in 78 and this in 1980. But beyond that, virtually everything else he's done has been television. Yeah, I remember him from the Jodie Foster, Johnny Whitaker TV Tom Sawyer movie, which I think was his. So maybe it's just that, you know, he had done a lot. He had come up on television and went pretty much straight back to television. Oh, yeah. This feels like it's a very small scale, efficient version of this movie. You know, if they did it today to be Michael Bay and it would have giant set pieces and they'd actually fight the war here. The point is that they're ready to, but they can't. Of course, you can't have them refight World War Two. Or the movie becomes something totally different. The final countdown kind of plays like a very high budget ABC movie of the week, but definitely recommended. Yeah, yeah, it's worth it. And there's a really nice Blue Underground uh, Blu-ray of it that's that's available. Tell our listeners not, not only what our next movie is, but 
who you made watch this movie two weeks ago? The whole oh, I made you watch this movie two weeks ago. Obviously, you know, a lot of times we'll rewatch movies and do a little bit of chat chatter so we can get ready for the show. And I had seen bits and pieces of this film on HBO when I was a kid. And even then, I knew it was unwatchably bad. One hour after seeing the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu, Excellent. you'll want to see it again. Who, who? Love it. Let's have some fun. Peter Sellers in The Fiendish Plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. The Far East has never been so far out. Uh, this movie blows. This movie blows on an epic scale, and it is, it's really disheartening because this was Peter Sellers right at the end of his career. He was deadly ill when he was making it. He should not have been working. He knew he shouldn't have been working. I find it disturbing to watch the movie where they keep shocking him to bring him back to life because of his heart attacks that he keeps having in the film. And, you know, knowing that he died of a heart attack, basically, as this thing was trickling to a finish, it makes it really uncomfortable. On top of that, the film is terrible. And he's playing these multiple roles in this movie. The uh, the main two he's playing, obviously, are Dr. Fu Manchu and then the detective who's chasing him. And you would think that a detective character in the hands of Sellers would be something interesting or that he would do something with it. And there is nothing. There is nothing interesting about the detective character. There's nothing memorable about him. There's no jokes involving him. It's just a deadly, unfunny project to begin with. I know what he's doing is he's doing the tradition of white actors playing Dr. Fu Manchu, and he's making fun of that to some degree. But I, I don't I don't know if I agree with that, Drew. I, I don't know if in 1980 we had gotten to the point where uh, Peter Sellers would have been satirizing Yellowface or, or white actors. I, I honestly think that it, it, at this point we were still in the there wasn't even that much back. Well, there's no yeah, there's no reason he should have played it. And it's yeah, it's, no, it's just plain up offensive. I mean, and this was, was right at the same time that people got upset about and rightfully so. But they got upset about Peter Ustinov and Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen, which we'll cover in 81. And in both cases, I feel like the studios that made these movies went, wait a minute, really? You can't do that anymore. Like they didn't realize that that it had started to shift. But there was pushback. There was very public pushback against both of these movies. Now, you know, say what you will about Peter Sellers. He had a notoriously difficult life, but the man was a genius. I mean, between Dr. Strangelove, Inspector Clouseau, and being there alone, uh, as opposed to his, even in addition to his early work on The Goon Show, the guy was a genius. But like a lot of geniuses, geniuses seem to make a lot of bad movies. You know, it's like the Reggie Jackson thing. I don't know if he still holds the record, but for the longest time, you know who the leading leader in strikeouts was? Reggie Jackson. Why? He was also the home run leader. Why? Because you don't get home runs unless you swing like crazy. So, you know, that's how I look at a guy like Peter Sellers, which is, you know, he signed on for a lot of bad films and probably thought, oh, we can make it better throughout and then just couldn't. This is a movie where they went through director after director after director and Sellers ended up directing part of it. John G. Adelson was a director on it. Pierce Hager gets the credit, but Evidently, Sellers shot as much as anybody, if not more. So it, it's really a Sellers film. But, I mean, just doesn't work as a movie. He has a weird relationship with young Helen Mirren, who plays a undercover police constable. Okay, if this movie is atrocious in every way. However, if you are a huge Helen Mirren fan and you've only known her as her older lady roles and you want to see her in something where she's young, 
she jumps into it with both feet. Hard to tell if she knows it's crap or not, but she yeah. earned her paycheck. So she is the lone bright spot in the otherwise virtually unwatchable Dr. Fubank show. I yep. hate it. And there is a brief appearance in the movie by Burt Quauk, and it is meant to be this kind of hilarious moment where they, they interact with one another. They, they blow it. Not even that is interesting. And if you can't have fun with that connection, then it, you just, you, what are you doing? Okay, so uh, we're going to move on. This next one, let's just jump in. The Bandit is back. It's the Bandit. With 2,000 miles to go, two tons of pregnant pachyderm in his truck, and 2,000 cops on his tail. Universal Pictures presents Burt Reynolds, Jackie Gleason, Jerry Reed, Don DeLuise, and Sally Field in the all-new Smokey and the Bandit Part 2, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Nonsense. This is the very definition of a victory lap. Because this is just a lazy, smug retread of the first movie. I remember when I saw this with my parents, because Smoking the Bandit was, to my dad, what Star Wars was to me in 77. It was a big fucking deal. And we saw Smoking the Bandit a lot. So when this came out, it was a pretty big deal. And I remember going with my dad to see it. And it played like gangbusters. But you have to remember that I lived in Chattanooga at the time. This was like Fonzie for Rednecks. Uh, the bandit was an icon. So anything he did in the second movie, they went ape shit for. And adding Dom DeLuise and a pregnant elephant is completely fucking ridiculous. Yeah, I really, I really loved this movie as a kid. I, I have very fond memories of the third act in, in which all the tractor trailers are racing across the desert. It's a huge uh, stunt sequence. Huge. Yeah, and I remember loving that. And I thought several years later when I watched rewatched the first two, I thought, oh, the first one's a bit more charming than I remember. I thought it would have been kind of tacky and gross, but no, it's actually kind of sweet and fun. And I thought, all right, let's keep it going with the second one. And it, it's like you said, it's like how Airplane 2 vir- steals virtually all the jokes from the first movie. That's kind of what Smokey and the Bandit 2 does. It kind of just regurgitates the same bits with Sally Field and Jackie Gleason, and now Jackie Gleason is playing multiple roles and not some of his best work. No, the the good stuff with Jackie Gleason is where it's just him abusing Mike Henry, who plays Junior. Those two are funny together, and there's a genuine chemistry. Yeah, that character, especially with his idiot son-in-law, that's funny. But they lean on it really hard this time. They also do. They they come back and they give them a lot more where he's just abusing Junior, and that's a big running joke. A lot of times sequels make a mistaken attitude where they get some essential thing wrong some relationship wrong and it's okay if you evolve a relationship but to get it wrong to get what it was that the audience loved wrong in this movie it's the fact that bandit and frog are fighting for the whole film that's not what we liked in the first movie we liked the fact that they were flirting with one another and clearly he wanted to fuck her silly and vice versa and there's such a weird it's chemistry that's immediate and they can't stop flirting with one another and that's what's charming in the first film in this movie because they were breaking up in real life everything they do in this movie sounds like a therapy session and it's unbearable being in the car with the two of them yeah and the thing is that now it's written almost like we have to chart the you know like before sunset where those films like charted the the course of their relationship but these characters were never deep enough for that kind of meat so just you know, a better angle would have been they had broken up between movies and are now trying to get back together. 
that would have played a lot better. And and like you said, a lot of their banter is very desperate, very smug. And and then there's Dom DeLuise as the elephant. Oh my god. It does have a great final sequence, the one you referred to in the desert, where it's the fifty semis versus the cop cars, and it's it's a pretty big stunt sequence. As sequels go, this is kind of what what I hate about sequels, where they they really feel like you, they're doing you a favor, giving you part two, and aren't you lucky that they did it for you? Oh, you liked our first movie. Well, here's another one you'll just eat up instead of trying to win the audience over. It's not fun when that happens, when a movie you remember liking and you see it again and you're like, oh, God. This next one's just a weird train wreck of a movie where I I don't even understand some of the choices that were made in terms of how they adapted a piece of material. I'm speaking about Raise the Titanic. What a lovely thing she was, standing as high in the water as one of your skyscrapers. And God himself, they said, couldn't sink her. Then in two hours, she was gone. And 1,500 souls with her. Starfish. It's gone fast. She's going down fast. they got to lose some weight. Uh, Release the damn thing. 90% of what I know about Raise the Titanic prior to seeing it was from books like The Malton Guide. We had a couple other annual movie guides. And it was so bad that the author... Refused to sell any of his books for, what, another 25 years? It was a long time, and because I didn't realize when Raise the Titanic came out that it was part of a series, and this was the third in the series, and then by the time this movie came out, they were already four deep into the books, and they've now, they've done something like 22, and Sahara, the Matthew McConaughey film, is, is part of the same series. Watching this movie, you would never believe that Dirk Pitt is a, a franchise star, and that First of all, Richard Jordan is not a guy you hang a franchise on. And Richard Jordan plays Dirk Pitt and Raise the Titanic, which is mistake number one. The weirdest part of the idea is that you've got two totally different stories. The one is the idea of, okay, we're going to raise the Titanic, and how are we going to do it, and how are we going to bring the ship up, and, and is that even possible? And then the other hand is, and on board the Titanic, there is this rare super mineral that makes lasers work, and the Russians want that, and we're going to fight Russians for it. That half of the movie is so batshit silly that you could have just done a movie about bringing the Titanic to the surface. You didn't need any of the other spy stuff, but that's what makes it so bizarre. Yeah, it, it, and and it's the kind of movie that like even its producers were were already like within a year were mocking it themselves. One of the producers infamously said it would have been cheaper to r- lower the Atlantic. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if you want to look at uh, mega bombs. Late Irwin Allen era bad? Would you say it's that kind of film? It's it's pretty terrible, and it's and the effects in it are confusing. I, I don't even want to call them bad; they're just confusing. They're they're weird effects where you look at it and you go, "Well, I know what you're doing. I don't know why you did it like that, but okay, I guess." Wasn't this re released somewhat recently? Or Shout Factory? Or? I think Shout Factory did a, a release of it not too long ago, and you know it's one of those movies that I think a lot of people know by title more than they know by actually having seen it. And I think seeing it the first time, it's kind of none of what you want from a movie called that. It's the kind of thing where you hear something's notoriously bad and you watch it and you realize, oh, it's not really fun bad. It's just kind of tiresome bad. Whereas that's not fun bad. I would say that the next film that we're going to do is very fun bad.
Xanadu. Right. Listen, I mean, this is Olivia Newton-John at her most insanely hot. It's got Don Bluth animation. It's got ELO original music. It's got Gene Kelly doing his final musical. This must be a great movie, right? Yeah. No. (laughs) It It is not a great movie, but it is a fascinating mess of a movie. Raise the Titanic, you go, oh, all right, I see what they were going for. It's like yeah. uh, an espionage thriller mixed with sci-fi of, what? what is Xanadu about? Well, Xanadu is, there was that moment right then where disco musicals, everybody was trying to figure it out, and we've already talked about Can't Stop the Music. We're going to talk about the Apple later this year, but Xanadu is the biggest of them, I think. And, you know, coming off of Greece, they must have decided that they had to figure out another movie to make with her. And ELO, for God's sake, it seems like a really easy, if you're going to do a disco musical, ELO seems like maybe the best possible version of that. When producers go off the rails, they do it on musicals. Oh, this one just, I, the idea of, okay, it's the muses, and she's a runaway muse, and then she inspires the old guy, and they're going to remake the club, and then it's roller disco, and... Gene Kelly's in it, but you have really just one number with him dancing. It, it is a movie of weirdly missed opportunities. Her leading man is not exactly. Uh, Michael Beck is is the worst. Quite good. A few years earlier in, in um, Walter Hill's The Warriors. But, I uh, think the Warriors is one of those movies that is so aggressively well-directed that Michael Beck is fine in it. Yeah, he's pretty good there. I don't know if... Uh, he was ever meant to be like a romantic leading man in a musical yeah. film. And it's weird because this movie was directed by Robert Greenwald, who later in his career, he's a huge documentary filmmaker and a really well-loved documentary filmmaker. He does really strong, interesting work. Xanadu is a batshit weird outlier in his filmography, though. Like you look at the rest of what he does. This was just a strange detour in his early days. Yeah, it must be fun to bring it up with him in conversation. there. <laughs> talk about social and political documentaries and you're like all right dude now let's talk about xanadu (laughs) well and the one and the one thing about the gene kelly because here's the thing i think most of the musical stuff in this movie is shot terribly like i don't think greenwald has a real eye for how to shoot dance but there's that one gene kelly number that's shot well where you can tell gene kelly directed it like he said okay this is how we're going to do this you're going to shoot me like this for that one moment gene kelly is gene kelly and he's amazing I'm sure that there are a lot of nostalgic defenders of Xanadu and stay vigilant, always defend what you love. The Jeff Lynn music, the score is pretty damn good. I love ELO, period. And it's really hard for me not to enjoy ELO music on some level. And it's certainly not as bad as Can't Stop the Music was, which that was a genuinely horrible film. Like Xanadu feels like it was kind of glued together by things that were hot at the time. But well, I think the Don Bluth number was added at the last minute. It was like a reshoot thing. And so that's why it's animated. And that's actually kind of a lovely piece of animation. And that was that first moment where Bluth had just left Disney and was starting to set up his own company. It was it looks as good as Disney animation in that era looked. And that was an early indicator that Bluth was really going to try to make a run at what they were doing and run his own studio. Yeah, Xanadu is, it's bad, but it's hard to hate. <laughs> Xanadu has kind of an earnestness to it that makes you, it, it's pretty bad in many ways, but it's hard to like, just dislike it. Now, we are getting to probably my favorite movie of this month, and this is our weekly pick of Please Dig It Up, and then let us know on Twitter, Scott E. Weinberg, Drew McWeeny, 
And it is a wonderful homage to Seven Samurai and The Magnificent Seven. Uh, it is a beautiful science fiction, kitschy B-movie called Battle Beyond the Stars. Ruthless invaders, a defenseless planet, and a daring band of space adventurers fighting to save it. Battle Beyond the Stars. A battle that ends in a desperate gamble. They'll be able to board us. It won't make any difference. Richard Thomas, George Pappard, Robert Vaughn, John Saxon. Battle Beyond the Stars. Rated PG. Is it weird to call this the most important science fiction movie of 1980? Because while the movie itself is kind of silly and fun, and it's just the Magnificent Seven in Outer Space, it is also the reason that James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd met. And if they had not done that, God knows what sci-fi would have looked like in the back half of the 80s, man. No Terminator, no Abyss, no T2. So thank God for Battle Beyond the Stars. Yeah, it was a very influential film. And I, I know I could probably name 10 or 12 people that none of our listeners know, or maybe one, uh, Cargill, our beloved friend Cargill, who uh, co-wrote uh, Doctor Strange. It's one of his, maybe one of his favorite movies, but... So many people from our generation love this movie. Well, this is another. It's another John Sayles script, and uh, like Alligator last week, this is a very knowing script. He is well aware of not only Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven and the fact that one is clearly lifted from the other, but the fact that that shape had then been used over and over. So by the time Sayles got to it, he was able to have some fun with it, and he wrote the characters in such a way that each introduction is fun and each place we go to meet one of the seven characters that comes together is interesting and it makes good use of its budget. It makes good use of its world building. It's genuinely a smart, fun little sci-fi film and it has a great early James Horner score. And a really good cast, a perfect tone. It's the best case example of a potentially cynical combination. Clearly, Roger Corman and some of his co-producers wanted to said, somebody said, Star Wars meets Magnificent Seven. And they went, okay, and they made the best possible low-budget version of Star Wars meets Magnificent Seven, because that's what it is. It's not apologizing for being a knockoff of those two films, but it it has a lot of charm. The, 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 the spaceship design, some of it done by Cameron himself, is fantastic. And it's just good, kitschy fun. Now, would a 12-year-old who sees it today love it like a 12-year-old me did in the I early can, 80s? I can answer that question. Go ahead. Yes, it plays very well. Your boys watched it? They really enjoyed it. Okay, Drew's kids are um, 34 and 31. Exactly. Now, how old are your kids? Tell everyone. Uh, eight and eleven right now. It just played well. Like it wasn't a thing where it played well for this kind of movie. It played well. Like it, they enjoyed it and they they laughed at all the right stuff. And I think you know, um, what do you uh, what do you know about the director Jimmy Murakami? I know that he also that this was a movie that Corman had his hands on a little bit while it was in production. Um, but I don't know much about the director, frankly. I believe, and I'm going to double check now just so I'm not mistaken. But I believe Jimmy Murakami went on to do a lot of animation. 
there, there were a lot of movies made post Star Wars that had no sense of how to stage the space battle and no sense of fun in how it, it handled that stuff. It was very perfunctory. And it, you could tell that the guys were just trying to do it because Star Wars did it and they didn't really get why it was fun or interesting. This movie, the space stuff is really fun. Like you can tell that he enjoyed shooting it. He enjoyed coming up with how to shoot it. It's really efficiently made. Oh, yeah. Jimmy Murakami also directed a brutal, beautiful, but but tragic uh, uh, animated film from 1986 called When the Wind Blows. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that that is a sledgehammer. That is a gut punch. And we'll get to that in a couple of years. That's okay. very good. But yeah, yeah. Wow. Like Jimmy Murakami worked a lot in animation throughout the rest of his career. He also worked on heavy metal, which we'll get to next year. One of the uh, faces who shows up in... Uh, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. It's got a lot of recognizable uh, stars, Robert Vaughn, things like that. But I really enjoy the work of Darlan Flugel, who was one of those actors who this was kind of her moment. This was right in that stretch of films where she was working on a lot of stuff and she was showing up in a lot of stuff. And I just I love when there are actors who had their era and maybe it wasn't a very long one. But when they worked, they were really interesting and they were worth checking out. Yeah, Darlene Flugel was a bit more prolific than we, we might, most people might think. She's gonna her name will pop up a few more times uh, throughout the decade. She's a an underrated character actor, definitely. All right, so this next movie is um, this was supposed to be Jackie Chan's big moment. This was supposed to be him taking over the American market, um, and to make sure that it happened, Warner Brothers put him together with Robert Klaus, the director of Enter the Dragon which was exactly how they made the mistake on the big brawl. He was raised in a centuries-old tradition. Jerry! Ah! Tutored in the ancient arts. <laughs> preparing for a moment that would challenge even the wisest and most skilled of all his ancestors. You're ready for Texas. Jackie Chan is going to the big brawl. It is interesting slightly in that it takes place in the 30s and that it has a young Jackie Chan who is very charming. It also has uh, Jose Ferrar, Mako, and uh, a few other names and faces you might recognize. But it's, I don't know, as great as Enter the Dragon is, the big brawl leaves a little something to be desired. Well, see, this was the problem because in Hong Kong, they made this mistake in Hong Kong. The, the original thing they did with Jackie Chan was they were going to make him the next Bruce Lee, which he's not, he is nothing like Bruce Lee. And that was a mistake that they made for a while until they kind of started to figure it out with snake and Eagle shadow and drunken master. And they went, Oh, okay. So Jackie Chan is funny and it's more like a Buster Keaton thing. And it's more like you put the comedy in with the action and he uses things that he finds in fights and okay, that's it. So there's a little bit of that in this movie. There's a few of those gags in some of the fight sequences, but for the most part, I don't, I don't think this is Jackie Chan being used properly. It's funny because we talk about, you know, uh, Smoking the Bandit 2 and how that was the victory lap for sort of that redneck comedy thing that was going on. And there's some of that in this movie. The idea that it's all set in Texas in the 30s and it's kind of rednecky and it's more Western than it is Eastern. So I just I don't think all these elements fit together, but it does have, like you said, it has Mako, who I, I like a lot. It has Kristen DeBell as his girlfriend, who we know from Meatballs and a couple of other things, and she's pretty charming in this. And I think the final fight 
kind of works. But I think everything getting there, there's a lot of bad choices made in this. And as much as I like Robert Klaus, wrong dude for this movie. Moving on, our next film, it is an obscurity uh, that I've never seen. I don't know if you have, Drew, but we like to include these things for uh, completion's sake. It is a romantic comedy called Those Lips, Those Eyes. I have seen this. And um, this is Michael Pressman, who had done a couple of films before this that I liked, uh, The Great Texas Dynamite Chase. And he, he was working. He had made some films. And then Those Lips, Those Eyes was his personal movie. It's set in the world of summer stock theater. And it's set in the 50s. And Tom Hulse is a young guy who gets cast in a play. And uh, Frank Langella is the star of the play. There's a chorus girl who becomes his girlfriend. Tom Hulse is the eyes through which we kind of see this whole world. As much as I like Hulse, I think he's really annoying in this movie. And he's one of those guys who, if you cast him wrong, he's really frustrating as a lead. And I think this is a case where he's the wrong guy. Langella, on the other hand, Frank Langella, who plays the, the actor, who's the star of the play, I think Langella is really great in this. It's one of these movies that's very much about nostalgia. It's very much about, I think Michael Pressman must have had some summer stock experience because it feels like a movie made by somebody who has literally been through this. Uh, it reminds me a lot of um, both uh, Dirty Dancing and The Flamingo Kid to some degree in terms of the way it wants to capture a particular time and place. It's a little more innocent, but it wants to be clear-eyed about it. Those lips, those eyes from the director of Dr. Detroit and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. Now, this, uh, this next one is a really odd obscurity that I actually have seen. And it is based on a well-known French novel that was turned into a brilliant film. And it is called Willie and Phil. This movie is a pain in the ass to get hold of. It took me about two months to find a copy that I could watch for this. And um, it's just not easily available right now. It's not readily available. And it's another one of those that I'm curious why that is, what the rights problem is. I can imagine there's quite a few things that could keep it from being readily available. This is basically Paul Mazursky's. It's not a remake of Jules and Jim, but it is about two guys played by uh, our Michael Ankeen and Ray Sharkey who meet at a screening of Jules and Jim Truffaut's film. And there's a girl that they both are interested in. And the three of them end up basically reflecting that romantic triangle from Jules and Jim, but in an American film and uh, through sort of American culture. And as much as it's about anything, it's about the way we take movies and want to live like them. But then real life doesn't kind of live up to movies. Yeah, that's what I like about it is that we always like to think, oh, if I was a character in a movie, I'd be the hero and I'd always say the right thing and, uh, you know, great things would happen. And, you know, we all like to pretend sometimes that life or even imagine that life is like a movie. And that's kind of what this film does. And I think it's pretty clever. Um, it's Michael Ontkeen. I'm not really sure why he never broke out. I know he worked a bit in this era, but he never really uh, broke out as a, a major star. And Margot Kidder, who is underrated as an actress. Well, I think, well, here's the thing. With Margot Kidder, she never really... There weren't a lot of films where she had a chance to show much range. Uh, Lois Lane defined her in a lot of ways. She did not do a lot of work away from that. That kind of became a trap for her. And when you read Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, and you read about how Margot Kidder fit into the social uh, world of the 70s film world, 
Um, this film feels like the the one movie where we kind of see the real Margot Kidder, where we see somebody who's close to who she actually was. And she's really good in this. She, I mean, she is the driving force of the film. It's a tough one to dig up, but I think what both of us would recommend it. Yeah, I think so. Especially if you like Paul Mazursky, because I, I don't think anybody made more movies about it was what it was like to be a white guy trying to get laid in Los Angeles in the 70s than Paul Mazursky. And I think of those, this is one of them that has more to say and and does it in a way that that isn't just Mazursky sort of navel gazing. I, it's it's definitely worth tracking down, but good luck because it's really, really not available at the moment. Our next film is uh, one that Drew mentioned briefly. Um, it is one of Chuck Norris's arguably one of his best early films. Uh, it's certainly one that me and my you know, 12, 14 year old friends talked about all the time because he was so badass. And then I was so bored because Chuck Norris is like a block of wood. But Drew, what's this one called? Uh, this is the Octagon. In a world of choices, for one man, there is no choice. I'm going to kill you. Every way he turns only brings him closer to his ultimate destiny. He must face the Octagon. Chuck Norris, Karen Carlson. Lee Van Cleef, the Octagon, rated R. And uh, I actually, I, I prefer the other one we we mentioned in this episode, A Force of One. I think that's a little better movie. Uh, the guy who directed that one is the, gets a story credit here. And this is Chuck Norris taking on an international conspiracy of ninjas who are terrorists because most ninjas are also terrorists. They're definitely the worst kind of ninjas. Well, I mean, let's be fair. If you were a terrorist, you could do worse than to hire some ninjas. That's right. Uh, this has got Lee Van Cleef. It's got Art Hindle. This is, I think, this is a really low rent. Even even as the early Chuck Norris movies go, this one's pretty low rent, and it takes a long time before there's any action scenes in it. In general, Chuck Norris movies were a lot of blather uh, interrupted by one mediocre action scene, and then probably in the end, last half, the act three is a lot of chop socky fighting. It just goes to show that that's why I, I love Bruce Willis so much, because even when he's in a generic action movie, it's often fun because Bruce Willis is fun. Chuck Norris has never done anything for me as a personality. He's just boring. I, I don't have much rooting interest in his cheesy action movies. And then when he got to do stuff with slightly higher budgets, he was still just a mope. So I didn't care, you know, like missing an action and whatnot. Just boring. All right. So next up. This next film is... Um, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, we've talked before about um, these movies that, you know, it's almost like Saturday Night Live came along and made filmmakers realize that, oh, you know, maybe we could do this on the big screen. If, if sketch comedy is so popular on television, you know, and, and lots of producers tried to do... Well, this was, this was Second City guys. This was, at least it came from an honest place of these were sketch comedy guys working together in Chicago, in Second City, and they decided to do basically a movie of nothing but movie trailers for fake movies. Yeah, and I don't understand because the original title was Coming Attractions, and then they changed it to Loose Shoes. Here's a movie that makes Mel Brooks's humor seem sophisticated. Woody Allen's statuesque it's loose shoes a movie about ordinary people who get fed up and fight back with bill murray you gotta use real cream but you don't make it at all you know what i mean wkrp's howard hesman yeah 
Buddy Hack. Society to oppress and prevent involuntary tinkling. J.P. Morgan. The kid won't stop kissing. Avery Schreiber. My pits is killing me. And a few surprise guests. Based on a joke told by Earl Butts. Tight pussy, loose shoes, and a warm place to shit. Tight pussy, loose shoes, and a warm place to shit. Tight pussy, loose shoes, and a warm place to shit. That's it. That's it. Bring your friends or come alone. Anything. But don't miss loose shoes. You'll say. Big it. Good shit. Fuck off, folks. And this is uh, directed by Ira Miller. Um, and like I said, these were Second City guys. And so there's a lot of people uh, involved here who uh, either peripherally worked with Second City or worked directly with them, like Howard Hessman, um, Susan Terrell, who we uh, talked about in Forbidden Zone. She's in this briefly. Sid Haig is in this. Uh, Bill Murray is probably the biggest name who shows up. And he's got he's in one full sketch. A lot of this was just a, an excuse for all of them to do something that would get them some attention. And, you know, it's it's like anything else. It's super hit and miss. I don't think it's particularly witty. There's, you know, stuff like the invasion of the penis snatchers. And there's a Charlie Chaplin one that's where they like make it super, super Jewish. And that's the joke called the Yid and the Kid. There's a Howard Hughes parody called the Howard Huge story. I think the funniest thing in the movie is probably there's a Mon Pa Kettle uh, parody they do where instead of a talking mule they have a talking pig and the pig is fucking filthy it's actually one of the funnier ske- where the joke works and the execution is pretty strong but like a lot of it is they, they try to do things where i think the joke might have maybe worked on the page but they didn't execute it right they do a billy jack parody where it's billy jack goes to oz goes and it's the wizard of oz as well and it doesn't work at all Loose Shoes is one of those one of those films absolutely worth tracking down, particularly because of how many people are in it, how many people this represents an early milestone in their career for. You'll sit through a lot of it stone faced, but there are some laughs. Our next film for the longest time, I had trouble tracking it down on VHS in the 1980s. He knows who you are. He knows where you live. He knows you're alone. He knows you're alone, and it's going to be for the very last time. Rated R. What what is this film's quote unquote claim to fame? Uh, Tom Hanks is in it. Yes, for about one scene. Yeah, he uh, plays a victim, and the the hook on not even a victim. He's just a dude who shows up and is annoying. Yeah, the the hook on he knows you're alone is that the killer is uh, stalking brides to be, and it is pretty dull, pretty dull business. Yeah, there's an interesting bit that takes place in a uh, early in the film in a movie theater, but then for the most part, it becomes one of those slasher knockoffs where. Everybody involved knows that the first 55 minutes are just going to be tack, talk, talk, talk. And this one really wants you to buy into the mystery, and they make the mystery last until basically the closing credits begin to roll. And it is a dog of a mystery. Who cares? Not interesting, and certainly not a reveal that makes it worth the time that they they drag the whole thing out. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like, um, especially in the early 80s, uh, it seems like producers who saw that slasher films were becoming popular, their marching orders were, 
this stuff is no different than an Agatha Christie mystery, only we show the gore. And so a lot of these early slasher films were exactly that, a very tiresome whodunit with some gory kills. And they're not particularly scary. They're not particularly compelling. Tom Hanks completists will enjoy seeing him. But yeah, uh, horror fans, sorry, it's not, I'll probably get some hate tweets for this one, but it's not very good. It's not very good. You're, if you get hate tweets for that, people are really, really touchy about terrible movies. It's not a very good movie. It's not worth. Well, I'm a, like, I'm a big horror guy and I'm a big 80s guy. And I'm so far, I've trashed like prom night. I've trashed, you know, you're alone. But, but that's the point is that we're, we're looking at these things, not through the nostalgia of it's from the 80s and it's horror. So I must love it. But looking at it as these are films and they should be reviewed as films. Just because prom night was part of the slasher movement doesn't mean it's any good. And just because he knows you're alone is a title I recognize or because Tom Hanks is in it doesn't mean it's worth your time. Yes, it is a horror film from the 80s. Yes, you are a horror guy, but that doesn't mean you have to like it. It's it's just not very good. We'll get to some. There's great horror films coming. We'll get to those. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I, I just feel like I'm kind of betraying my younger self who would like rattle off statistics about problem. Right. That I understand because I was a completist like you were and I watched all this stuff and I treated it all equally. And that's kind of the point is I certainly went into it open. I, I watched all of this stuff and hoped all of it was great. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next month with September 1980. Uh, now, next that- time, we've got Walter Matthau plays spy games with the CIA. Yep. We have Woody Allen working in black and white. Yep. Chris Makepeace needs a bodyguard. And Robert Redford turns Mary Tyler Moore into the suburban mother from hell, all part of September 1980. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> 